0: I wonder how conversations might be different if we really believed that Jesus was in the room. Can't you just hear it now? We're going on and on about Jesus, and all of a sudden he's like, I'm in the room, people. Just ask me. There was a new movement in the early 70s known as liberation theology. And the movement took this Jesus in the room perspective very seriously. Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian theologian, was the leader of this movement. And to give you a little bit of context, it was in 1962, between 1962 and 1965, that an assembly of Roman Catholic leaders gathered for Vatican II. The gathering challenged scholars to renew their theology and biblical study. And in response to this challenge, Gutierrez set forth on a whole new direction, with far-reaching impact. It's no longer a Catholic movement. It's a Christian movement. And the central premise of liberation theology is preferential option for the poor. Preferential option for the poor is the biblical theme that discipleship includes seeing Christ present in the poor and marginalized and joining in their struggle. The artwork on the cover of your bulletin is an example of Christ being among the poor in the bread line. For Christians and those who strive to follow the teachings of Jesus, to make an option for the poor is to make an option for Jesus. And I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, I haven't read all of Gutierrez's work, but I'm guessing that Matthew 25 was an important part of his theological reflection and biblical study. You'll recognize these words, I'm hoping, because this is the one place in Scripture where it gives you the answers to the quiz. Your final exam is going to be how you do in these areas. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the people he was talking to are like, what? What are you talking about? When did I do any of that? And Jesus says, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then speaking to a whole other group, he says, you know, I was... I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And Jesus says, you know, you didn't do it to them. It's the same as not doing it to me. Jesus declares his solidarity with those who hunger and thirst, with those who are ill and imprisoned with the strangers and it's not just solidarity he's saying his very identity that was me you did that for me you didn't do that for me consider even the context of his death the one who was falsely accused publicly shamed and humiliated and publicly executed the poorest of the poor was the journey that he traveled and consider also that he was then raised to new life. Consider also the aspect of being raised to new life for those who were marginalized and poor, if you will. One of the things I like about Gutierrez is that he expanded the definition of poor. That's why I sort of nuanced it at the end there. You know, of course, poor is the lack of goods necessary to meet basic needs. Those are the acts of mercy that we hear in Matthew verse 25, but it's not limited to an economic dimension. It also includes inadequate access to education and health care, to public services, to living wages, and discrimination because of culture and race. Gutierrez came from South America. He understands what systemic poverty is. It's poverty by design. In a word, the poor are the disadvantaged. And by coming close to the disadvantaged, we set foot on the path of holiness. One of the things I love about the Catholic contemplative tradition is that there's always a striving to be on the path of holiness and wholeness, where we meet the risen one and where we are, in fact, in deep communion with all of humanity and all of creation. On the path of holiness, relationships are essential in discerning what kind of service is really needed. It's a process of walking and learning together. And Christy Walker is going to share with us some of her personal experiences
1: of walking and learning together. Good morning. Buenos dias. I'd like to share a couple of personal experience I've had with people in our larger community who fall into this caring for the poor category. People who are disadvantaged, disenfranchised, disempowered in our mainstream culture simply because of where they were born. I'm talking about immigrants, primarily Latino immigrants in our community but even more specifically undocumented Latino immigrants. Some people use the term illegal or alien. I prefer the word undocumented because the others sound so demeaning. Now I'm not an immigrant, I'm not Latina and I'm not undocumented. But for the past 25 years off and on, I've had the opportunity and the honor to spend quite a bit of time in and around different Latino communities. I spent time in Guatemala and Nicaragua teaching children and adults how to read. In fact, this vest was a gift from a dear family in Guatemala. Also here in Longmont for many years, I was a bilingual teacher teaching both in general classroom and teaching literacy to students. All of the students in my bilingual classes were of Latino descent, having Spanish as their first or sometimes only language. Some were citizens, some were not. Some parents had the proper paperwork for visiting or working in the US. Some didn't, and some of that paperwork for some of them had expired. Now, I loved my students and their families. They were so kind and grateful, studious, generous, joyful, and such hardworking families. And I was close to many of my families, many of the families of my students. They would invite me to their homes for dinner or for different family celebrations. However, 18 years ago, a lot changed in this community for some of these families. Because after September 11th, 2001, 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security had a much stronger presence in our community and in our country. In fact, a quote from the Migration Policy Institute states that the 9-11 attack prompted the profound realignment of the US immigration system. The post 9-11 era has witnessed the largest government reorganization since World War II. A few times after 9-11 early in the morning before school, there would be different mothers of my students who would bring all their children and sit in the school parking lot waiting for me to arrive. When I got out of my car, they would all come up, and the moms and the kids, and give me a big hug, but they were always crying in these instances. The first morning that this happened, the mother of one of my students grabbed my arms and desperately told me in Spanish. Immigration came to my husband's work. He hasn't returned home for days. We don't know where he is. We don't have papers. We have to flee from this area. It's not safe to live here anymore. I am so afraid. (laughs) I heard that story. I heard that story four more times within two or three months. One-fifth of my class fled Longmont because the threat or the actions taken by the immigration system was too much for them. Now, can you imagine a mother clutching her frightened children here in Longmont, saying it's not safe to live here? Well, that really was the reality for these five families, and that was just in my class. That wasn't in the school, that wasn't in the neighborhood, that wasn't in all of Longmont. That was just in one classroom here in Longmont. I don't know how many people in our community this affected. And I don't know what happened to those five families whom I love dearly. I told them I'd do anything for them. I I said, you can come live with me or I can take you someplace. Do you need any food or any money? But they all just hugged me with tears in their eyes and left. And despite the fact that they had my telephone number, I never heard from any of them. I don't know if they were ever reunited, if they were safe, where they ended up, or what became of their lives. I recall this experience and it always gives me a lump in my throat uh, because those images and those families being torn apart, those mothers desperately clutching their children with a fear in their eyes, they're just forever etched into my mind and into my heart. So yeah, that was 18 years ago. But today, I mean, certainly it's gotten better, hasn't it? Well, all you have to do is turn on the news and you can see or read how filled it is with anti-immigrant sentiment. The word ICE no longer just refers to the cold solid cube that you put in your water. (laughs) Now it also refers to the acronym for Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And the threats and the fears are very real and not just at the Mexico-US border. Here in July, July, the Denver Post published an article titled, Colorado immigrants wait nervously as the threat of ICE deportation roundups looms. And the ACLU of Colorado recently referred to the anti-immigrant reality in our area as ICE's modern day reign of terror. I witnessed this again about one and a half months ago this time right next to my home. It was about seven o'clock in the morning. I was getting my morning coffee and I suddenly heard grunting and stern voices coming from outside. I went outside and the first thing I saw was three black SUVs unmarked with darkened windows kind of parked haphazardly in the middle of the street. And then I looked a little bit closer and I saw my neighbor My 60-year-old Latino neighbor, face down in the middle of the street, surrounded by four strong, plain-clothed men, but wearing black vests that said ICE on the back. I admit, I was so immediately angered by this injustice that I was witnessing that I quickly approached the ICE officials, You can't do this to my neighbor. This is my neighbor. Where are you taking him? Do you have a warrant? And a few other words, flowery words. (laughs) And they just acted as if I wasn't even there. This man and his family have been my neighbors for years. They're always quiet, always very respectful and kind and friendly. They have great kids. He's been in this country for more than 20 years, and ironically, I have a sign in my yard that reads in Spanish and English and Arabic, no matter where you are from, we're glad you're our neighbor. One of his sons was videotaping the event and asked the ICE officials to please bring his father's medication to wherever he was going. My neighbor was calling out and crying to his family as he was forced into the vehicles and I could still hear him as they were driving up the street. I approached the family afterward, after their father and husband was taken away. What do you need? Do you want me to call ICE and testify that y'all are great neighbors? And if anyone else in your household or your family needs a safe space, you know where I live. I was haunted by this experience for weeks. It violated so many of my concepts about how we should be treating each other. And these aren't just my concepts. In the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the first three of their 30 rights states, or state, one, we are all born free and equal. Two, don't discriminate, and three, We all have the right to live in freedom and safety. Just down the road from us in Aurora, Colorado, there's an immigrant detainment facility that can house, I don't mean house, I mean imprison, that can imprison 1,200 undocumented immigrants. Currently, it is at full capacity. So there's a real need for advocacy around this issue in our own community. Science states that we share 99.9% of the same genetic code with every single human being on this earth. To me, this means that we all truly are children of God and that we're invited to see the humanity and the similarities and the oneness in all of our neighbors. But it also invites us to see the needs, the struggles, and the disempowerment that our neighbors may have. There are over 200,000 undocumented immigrants living in Colorado right now. And for perspective, that's more than two times the size of our total population in Longmont. That's also 200,000 people, more than 200,000 people who live in fear every single day. Here at UCC, when we talk about radical hospitality and that everyone, everyone is welcome and worthy and wanted here. I don't think Sarah and Amelia are meaning that only for us, only for those people sitting in this room. I think God really smiles when we take that sentiment and we turn it into action and service and sanctuary for the world and the people all around us. Because, and I quote, when you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. Several
0: weeks ago, I shared with you that I reached out to the Iglesia community following the massacre in El Paso and the presence of Immigration and Customs Enforcement in Longmont. And Anna Copeland and I sat down with the pastor and his wife a couple of weeks ago. And basically what we shared with them was that we cared about them. And we wanted to know if they were okay. And we asked them if they needed any. Prior to this, we had been talking about, others in the community had been talking about going to the border and, and... Doing a trip with border links and that's all worthy and that's good. And it was actually, I actually felt embarrassed that I hadn't thought to go to Iglesias sooner. Talk about our neighbors. We dedicate space to this church and to this community. They're right here three days a week, which is more than some of us. Turns out there was a lot that was needed and immediately following the service after the postlude, if you wanna hear how you can get involved in that movement, the movement to care for the poor in this context, just come forward in the sanctuary and I will share with you all the opportunities that exist because in two weeks time, several things have coalesced and eyes have been opened in a new way. Friends, we have said before God will use us. This is the first time since I've been here that I have felt the Spirit rushing like a wind and landing on our heads like a tongue of flame. If you want to hear about this, come forward after the service. The call of liberation theology to align with the poor included the challenge to let go of privilege. I know this is uncomfortable for some of us to hear because the Mostly we're talking about white privilege. And liberation theology said to let it go and take up a life of voluntary poverty. But as theology and biblical study continued since the 1970s and has expanded to include voices that are historically underrepresented or completely absent, What we're seeing now is more of a call to acknowledge and name our privilege, which I know some of you have done work around, and I applaud you for that, and to also work toward dismantling systemic privilege right here in our country. And this last piece is probably going to be new to you, using our privilege for good. You know, if we're going to have it, let's use it and let's use it for good and let's be smart about it. Here's an example. I learned this week that white privilege is helpful when it comes to matters related to immigration. Now, if there had been five people with Christie speaking to the officers, it might have been a different situation. And if someone had called the Longmont Police Department, something might have been different that day. Maybe not. But maybe Because what I learned from someone who has been on the inside of the detention centers is that the presence of white people at hearings inside of these detention centers and in courts throughout the country has a positive effect in making sure, in making sure people are treated fairly. We're just looking for fairness, aren't we? We're willing to follow the law. And let's be fair. So back to Scripture for just one moment. The ones who were feeding and giving drink and food and visiting and welcoming were surprised that it was Jesus that they were serving. And the ones who didn't were also surprised. They had missed it. It was right there in front of them and they missed it. Henry David Thoreau says, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. And liberation theology invites us to see, to see the Holy One, to see the Risen One in the bread lines, in the thrift store, in the hospital and the jail, in the detention center, to see Jesus in the
1: room. Friends, go out now to be people of compassion, people who are learning to live with hearts broken wide open. And as you go, go knowing that the light of God surrounds you, the love of God enfolds you, the power of God protects you, and the presence of God watches over you. Go in peace.